Hey, it's Zach. It seems like a foregone conclusion that the Jacksonville Jaguars will take Trevor Lawrence with the first pick in the NFL draft, but who will the Jets? J-E-T-S, Jets, 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 take a number two. What about the Dolphins with the third pick? Check out First Draft with Mel Kuyper Jr., Todd McShay, and Field Yates for updated mock drafts, big board risers and fallers, and more. You can find First Draft wherever you get your podcasts. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast on a somber day. The one-year anniversary of the death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gigi and other passengers in their helicopter. And uh, to help us commemorate that day and remember Kobe Bryant, I think it's very fitting that we begin with the three most anticipated words in niche basketball podcasts, which were uttered uh, by Kobe Bryant to my guest. And they are, what up, Beck? What's happening, Zach? Thank you for uh, for having me on on um, on this this somber day, um, which um, I don't even know. I don't even know like uh, how to process this a year later. Still, it's strange. And I'll tell you this before we get into it. One of the things I've noticed in the last day or so, a couple of days, and working on a couple of stories about this and some video for for SI and everything, um, I've realized like this this still hits me in a way that I don't quite understand. Like none of us in this business, I think we're like close, close to Kobe, you know, um, I covered him for a bunch of years and up close and then covered him a bunch of years from a distance. And the more I reread stuff and the more I talk about it, I don't even, I, I can't even understand my own emotional response, which is a strange thing to say out loud. But I find myself as I start to reread stuff, getting really choked up and emotional again. And, um, is, this is not, you know, this is not a family member. It's not a, not a friend. It was somebody I covered and was, was fond of also had some really tense, uh, rough moments with over, over the years. Um, it still hits me really freaking hard. So I can only imagine for people who idolized him, who, who were mentored by him, who are just, who were passionate fans of his, I can only imagine the way this affects people still. So yeah, a, a year later, it still kind of rattles me a little in a way that I'm not sure I understand. It feels at the same time like it just happened and it happened in another lifetime. Um, Yesterday, I I found myself surprised that a year had already passed. Yeah. Um, But also because of the pandemic, everything that was pre-pandemic feels like it happened in a world that's a thousand miles away. So even just digesting the time and and everything is is a little bit confusing. So a, a year ago today... Um, I was flying to Los Angeles from New York and we had just reached whatever feet that the Wi-Fi kicks in and I was sitting down. So we had just taken off and I was opened up my laptop and was going to pre-write some of my 10 things column to try to use my time wisely, get ahead of the week. I was going out for a week on the jump and we got this email from our news team saying, Hey, TMZ is reporting that Kobe Bryant is among the passengers who died in this helicopter crash. And I just remember sitting there thinking, what? This, this is obviously going to be a hoax like everybody else thought. And just I'll just never – that whole flight, we had five hours left in the flight to the place where Kobe Bryant played and had so many beloved fans. It was a very strange sensation um, even then. And um, – I find the whole where were you think a little bit morbid um, and I, I don't really want to get into it so much more. But you wrote a piece today that I thought I didn't really have the energy to write anything more on Kobe. I wrote a big piece um, the day after he, he passed last year 
about him and what he meant to the game and his his we'll say interesting personality um and uh and you wrote a piece today that i thought I, i'm glad you wrote this particular angle and the angle is where kobe bryant's game style and spirit um sort of lives on in current NBA players. And you chose five or six sort of avatars for various aspects of Kobe's personality. Why did you choose that route? And, and the one that I want you to dig into the most, because I think it's the most interesting, is Christian Wood. What drew you to Christian Wood, of all people? As yeah. When I think of Kobe Bryant, I do not think of Christian Wood. <laughs> Perpetually late, uh, somewhat unreliable, um, Many, many teams passed on him because of things that are very not Kobe, right? Like, does yeah. he have it in him? Does he have the be great mentality in him? So I, I was surprised to see him there. Um, so was I, because when I first came up with this particular uh, story idea um, many, many weeks ago, uh, Christian Wood was not on my mind at, at all. So, you know, I started at Sports Illustrated in December Within the first couple of weeks, we start talking about, hey, look, this anniversary is coming up, and you know, um, you know what are we going to do for for this anniversary? And I and I like you, Zach. I didn't I didn't want to revisit the day. I didn't want to do anything that felt morbid. I didn't want to do anything. I like we all of us who are in this business who wrote about him or talked about him in the wake of his death a year ago. If we had personal experiences as you did, as I did. If we had certain insights based on covering him, like we we emptied the notebooks then, and poured our our, our hearts out then, and all the the my my best remembrances of him, my emotions about the the moment, about everything, I poured into a column that I wrote a year ago today, and as I've said many times, the hardest thing I've ever had to write, and I didn't I didn't want to tap into that again. I I. I just, I felt like I, I said what I needed to say and that was it. And so I, I wanted to find something that was a little bit more uplifting and, you know, it, it sounds almost trite to say, well, Kobe's spirit lives on and, and but, but it does in so many different ways in the way he inspired people and in all these different aspects of, of the game today. So what I thought was if we were to take all of Kobe's best traits and list them, who matches that in today's NBA? And so the big shot mentality, those big moments, that's clearly Damian Lillard. Although there are other guys you could plug into that. Um, certain aspects of Kobe's mid-range game, I could go Devin Booker, could go DeMar DeRozan, Jason Tatum. Uh, and then I thought about Kobe even off the court. Uh, his advocacy for women's and girls basketball was a real hallmark of his later years. And right now that's Steph Curry. So what I did was I listed in the main story a bunch of different aspects that I think are represented in today's league where people are carrying carrying on the best of Kobe. And then I broke out five players. Um, Damian Lillard, Lillard is the big shot guy. Uh, Steph Curry is the WNBA advocate. Draymond Green as as the, the voice of blunt candor, or as I was jokingly referring to it in my notes to editors, the DGAF mentality. I know what that stands for. I'm hip enough to know what that stands for. Strangely enough, it was Shaq who, uh, my early years covering Shaq, at one point had replaced his nameplate of O'Neal on his locker at the forum with a nameplate that, that was IDGAF. And then he would come up with fake acronyms to, to make it sound like it was something other than what it was. Anyway, um, and then I had Jimmy Butler as the, the, the workout fiend. 
and who am I missing? That was those four. Russell Westbrook also. is the angry dunker. Oh, and Russell Westbrook as the, the the vengeful dunker. Um, I know so, your piece better than you. How am I telling you what's in your piece? What kind of preparation more. level is this? This is not a Kobe Bryant level preparation from you. This is Kobe Bryant level badgering by you. Um, Charmin, so. you're soft as Charmin Beck. <laughs> um, guilty. Um, so those five that I settled on to do these breakout, like 400 word mini, you know, uh, capsules on Christian Wood led the story and got me into the whole concept because while I was working on this story and had put out a bunch of calls to a bunch of different people trying to get Dame and Steph and Draymond and some others, I'm watching that TNT broadcast, uh, oh, whatever it was a week and a half ago, the casuals, <laughs> the casuals one. So Christian Wood gets the post game interview. And Shaq says, I didn't really know who you were. He kept referring to him as Woods instead of Wood. Yeah, uh, Shaq is really – Shaq is on one right now oh, on the man. post-game show. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what he was trying to do with Donovan. Anyway, we're getting we're going to talk yeah. about Shaq later right, because we'll I, think, I think the Kobe-Shaq relationship and just early Kobe, which you covered up close, is so interesting and fascinating. But um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. So, so Ernie Johnson has the first question to Christian Wood, and it's something about the mindset of the Rockets in the wake of the Harden deal. And Christian Wood's first two words, literally his first two words in his first ever live national TNT postgame interview are Mamba mentality. And then he talks for another couple minutes and, and two more times he mentions Mamba mentality. And yes, everything you said about Christian Wood is, uh, of course, true. And his circuitous path as an uh, NBA player, there are reasons for that, but the guy's become a, a, a breakout star of a certain level this season and got his first big payday and everything else. He's playing great for the Rockets. And to the extent that Christian Wood has gotten his career together and gotten himself together and become focused and more responsible and a more productive player, it's because in his words of the mama mentality and I didn't know, um, like, I, I don't think I was aware at the moment he said that, oh, Christian Wood grew up in Long Beach, California as a big Kobe fan, was five years old when they won their first championship in 2000. I just knew immediately, I'm looking for guys who are avatars of certain aspects of Kobe. I didn't think about the phrase Mamba mentality at all, except for with respect to, to his book, which went into some of the other things that I thought were you know, important traits about Kobe and his game and his, and his work ethic and all that. I was not going to use... Christian Wood in any way in this game, in this uh, story. It was going to be Dame Lillard and Steph and Draymond and the rest of these guys. And then he said that, and I thought, there's more there. So thanks to Rockets PR, to to, to Tracy and Sean for, uh, for getting me Christian after a practice a few days later, and we talked a little bit about Kobe. And yeah, he grew up on him. He idolized him. He wanted to be him. He, you know, tried to emulate all of his moves. And I just thought, you know, this is a guy who for all of his imperfections and very, you know, look, he's a center. There's nothing Kobe about him. He grew too big to be Kobe among other things. But the fact that a journeyman center who's 25, who's bounced between all these different teams and who's had the most unkobe like career, nevertheless, is a guy who, when you ask him how he got to the point he's at and his first words are Mamba mentality, it just speaks to Kobe's impact, his influence. And yes, speaks to the premise that I was uh, forwarding in this story, which is that his spirit does live on in all these various ways, including in places where you would not have expected it, like Christian Wood. 
I was drawn to Christian Wood in your story because of what he said. And here's what he said. I'll, re- I'll spoil a small chunk of your story. Go for it. I would say 70 to 80% of players are living through what Kobe has put out, says Wood. And that's his mentality. It's his approach to the game and just, you know, his winning mindset. It was just his determination, Wood says, his determination to take the last shot. And that line struck me because when I thought about Kobe Bryant and when I went back and watched a lot of his old games and read a lot of stuff about him in the wake of all this, he really is one of the only players who transcended all the normal ways we talk about sports. And I mean that in that to his fans and to even neutral fans who didn't particularly care for him and to players, all of this, the ways we normally talk about basketball, statistics, efficiency, everything other than the championships, the five rings, which is the only statistic that really matters, it all missed the point of Kobe Bryant. It wasn't anything to do with why people gravitated toward Kobe Bryant. He became almost an ideology unto himself before he ever said the words mama mentality, before he essentially branded an ideology. He stood for fearlessness and courage late in games and sort of like impenetrable will and daring that people wished they had in themselves. And so when you would debate about, well, you know, he actually is a just a so-so clutch shooter if you break down the numbers and takes too many mid-range shots and boy, I wish he would pass more before the triple teams came and blah, blah, blah. All of it, the way we, even even we, we talk about LeBron even in like traditional normal basketball terms, all of that missed the point. Kobe Bryant became something ineffable, something bigger than the sport, something where the actual... X's and O's and stuff didn't matter. He stood for something. He became really, this is what I wrote in my remembrance of him. He became an ideology. And that's what Christian Wood is talking about. Christian Wood doesn't care about the statistics, about whatever. He just saw somebody who said, I can do anything and I will take any risk and I will take any shot and I want it all on me. And you don't, it doesn't matter if he's five for 26 in the last 90 seconds of games within the last, it doesn't matter. It's just the act and the style and the will to do it that ended up mattering more than anything else. And he became, it just, it's that the way people talk about him and process him is different. The only player I can really think of in recent vintage like that is Allen Iverson for completely different reasons. The discussion, the analysis of Allen Iverson, the devotion to Allen Iverson was about something much more than basketball and efficiency. He stood for something grander than that in a much different way than Kobe did. And that's what I thought Christian Wood brought out in your story is just he became an idea and an aspiration and a style more than a basketball player. Yes, it's um, it's the audacity of Kobe, right? It's, it's the audacity of the kinds of shots he might take and when he would take them, that he would, you know, that he would take them at all. Um, and then he would make them like he, and not always. Right. And people can get into the efficiency and then you can get into the, uh, you know, the clutch time stats and all this other stuff, even that stuff to an extent, as you say, misses the point. Um, even, even players who, who on the surface did not play like Kobe or played on teams that did not play anything like Kobe because Kobe at the end of his career, people, it's hard to remember now. It almost became like carnival-esque 
the way yeah. he was playing. I remember watching a game. I was in Washington, D.C. After a Wizards game, I went out to drinks uh, with a couple of people who were the scouts types who were at the game. And the Lakers game was the late game on TNT. And it was during Kobe's either last or second to last year when he was just playing this like grotesque, antiquated basketball. And we were joking. Like the executives were like, oh, I wonder who's going to take the last shot. And they called the timeout. And I think Byron Scott was the coach then. I can't remember. And, um, and the executive I was with was like, I wonder, I wonder who's, I wonder what Kobe's saying to, to the coach right now. Like, oh, I'm going to draw up the play. Like it was, it, it, it became sort of carnivalesque by the end. But, um, but, but even then, Dirk Nowitzki, the 2016 Hawks or the 2015 Hawks, the 60 win Hawks team who played this egalitarian style, they all were told me we're just obsessed with Kobe. We still watch every second of Kobe. We still can't take our eyes off Kobe. It just was something more than sports. Yeah. And look, the fact is, first of all, I, I think people needed to, when they're assessing Kobe, like throw out the last several years there. Everything, certainly everything after the Achilles injury. Um, and there are even some other spaces in there where I think Kobe went into overdrive and, and yeah, overdid it at times. But Kobe at his best could actually be really efficient and could be a great distributor. And um, we're going to, at some point in this pod, talk about our favorite game. And I'm going to go with a different one than I normally do, in part because I want to underscore something about uh, when Kobe was at his best, how just ruthlessly efficient he was and could be. Yes, there were times where he went to extremes. But if you were a Laker fan or if you were a Kobe fan, I think you accepted that because you knew he could make that shot through the triple team. He could split that double team. He could make that off-balance one-footer. And part of the thrill is when he tries to pull off the impossible and then does. And if he doesn't, you still you just have this incredible admiration for the fact that he even attempted it because most guys wouldn't. And a lot of the guys who might attempt it, by the way, didn't have the skill level or didn't put in the preparation. And, and that goes to one of the things that Damian Lillard said for my story, which was, when, when you talk about what it takes to be great in the clutch and to take those shots and be confident and fearless in taking them, it's because you prepared. And one of the lessons that Kobe taught him early in his career was about preparation and certain kinds of preparation. And, you know, Kobe had the confidence to take those shots, even if they weren't the quote unquote, the best shot or the most efficient shot or Shaq was open and you should have hit him. Kobe could take those because Kobe had worked his freaking tail off to be prepared for those moments and to take those exact shots at those weird ass angles. Cause he probably practiced all those weird ass angles. So, you know, that like, that's, that's the real lesson there. And yeah, we could all go back. Kobe himself could go back because he's so smart about the game and could have looked at back and said, yeah, probably should have, you know, passed there. Probably should have taken that one back. Probably should have driven the other. He has done what? that at times in detail. He broke down yeah. a couple of his own game or at least one of his own games in detail. And he spotlighted, he spotlighted a very sulky, Trevor Ariza, who was wide open and Kobe didn't pass to him. And you saw Trevor just all the air came out of him. And Kobe was like, Yeah, I probably should have made that pass. <laughs> um, but but it's but he, you know, in Kobe's mind, and this was certainly the case during the Shaq and Kobe years and during amid all their tussle, in Kobe's mind, he had earned those moments and he had earned those shots because he had worked his ass off and had perfected those shots and had prepared for those moments and had studied all the film. And he knew that if the defense defense was going to come at him this way, his counter was going to be this. And that's how he was going to get to his shot or get to his spot. 
And yeah, like, how do you argue with that? He, like he did, he put in all the work, he put in all the hours, he put in all the film study, he put in all the workouts, he put in all the work to, to refine his, uh, his, his arsenal of shots. And so, uh, yeah, like how can you argue with the fact that he had earned those moments? Now, again, at the end, it's, it, you could still say, well, technically that wasn't the best shot. Okay, fine. But you can't, it, it's hard to argue with the mindset. And when people are drawn to that, especially players, players who, you know, more than anybody, could probably watch this and say, yeah, good shot, bad shot, bad, you know, shouldn't have taken that one. And yet players almost universally admired and, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and looked up to him because they knew what went into it. And they also knew he, you know, even on the ones he missed, he could have made them because he was that good. And so like whoever you are in this league, wherever you are in the, in the pecking order and including the Christian Woods of the world, you don't have to, be able to achieve everything that Kobe did or be as skilled as he was, or even necessarily work as hard as he did. I think the lesson is that he set this incredibly high standard and you strive for it. You may never get there. Very few people are going to achieve, you know, full Kobe-ness, but it, it, it's, it's aspirational. It's man, that guy busted his ass and did all these things and then achieved greatness, but it's not the greatness that we care about. Uh, to your point, the, the five rings, sure they matter, but it's, it's how he got there. And that's what's so inspirational about him. And that's why so many guys looked up to him. And, and um, it really is like, it, it would be interesting to, to pull all 450 players at any given time and see how many would say that Kobe was their favorite player or one of their primary inspirations. I think well, it's, I, I yeah. can't remember um, whether it's the last season, uh, Phil's book about the 20, 2004 Lakers, which you are featured in a few times in controversial fashion, Mr. Beck. Um, or uh, Jeff Perlman has a relatively new book called Three Ring Circus that I'm about halfway through about the Shaq Kobe era. Um, somewhere in there, either Jim Buss or somebody said, or Jerry Buss says, you know, our fan mail runs five to one Kobe over Shaq when they're talking about which are we going to keep when this becomes untenable. Uh, and, and, you know, part of it is that guards are always more identifiable for regular people than the, than Goliath. Right. But part of it is, is this, and, and it's all, and this is, I want to get into the Shaq Kobe era now, because in rereading the last season and in reading Jeff Perlman's book, it really reminds you like Kobe was an incredibly difficult personality and oftentimes very, very unpopular with teammates, not just Shaq. And maybe especially not just Shaq. Like Jeff Perlman goes into Kobe's first two summer leagues in the NBA in his book, Three Ring Circus, buy it. Um, the summer league teammates hated him, hated Kobe. He wouldn't pass the ball. He was selfish. He was greedy. He thought he was the best player on the floor. Um, he, he took particular offense to Jimmy King from the Fab Five's presence on one of those teams. And went out of his way to belittle Jimmy King in a way that people made uncomfortable. This is all before Shaq. And if anything, if anything, the Kobe Shaq stuff is worse than people remember. It was worse. Their relationship was worse. It was nastier. It was, Jeff Perlman's book opens with the story of Kobe Bryant punching Samaki Walker in the face in 2002. Do you remember that story? Yes. Did you cover it? Yes. Do you, do you remember the backstory? Um... I, I did not remember the backstory until I read Jeff Perlman's book and said, like, I remembered that they had fought and 
I remembered certain pieces of it and I kind of remembered, I could like picture where we were in, in the arena the next day to ask Samaki about it and that kind of stuff. I did not remember the, the grisly details of it. Um, as I recall now having read the book and I, I read it months ago, so it's, it's faded a little bit, but it was about a bet, right? And about paying up a bet. They, and they, holding they, it over. they do a half court shooting competition with money on the line after practice, the whole team and Kobe wins it. And so everybody owes him some trivial amount of money, like 20 bucks or five camera. It's not a lot of money for an NBA player. And Samaki just doesn't have it on him. Just has no cash on him as people right. are, want to have no cash on him. And so Kobe bugs him and bugs him and bugs him and gets on the bus and he's cursing up a blue streak, which people thought um, was quite funny because it was not the way Kobe had ever been before. He was one, I think it's Jelani McCoy says in the book, um, just calls him phony. He was trying on his Beanie Siegel uh, personality is what Jelani McCoy Where's my f***ing money, Mock? Where the f*** is my money, Mock? And Samaki Walker's like, don't talk to me like that. And Kobe just clocks him in the face. And the story goes on to get even worse. Samaki Walker gets up to fight Kobe. And Shaq, according to Jeff Perlman's telling, is in the background on the bus saying, F him up, F him up, Samaki. Like he wants some, he wants Samaki Walker to beat up Kobe Bryant. And then they stop the bus. Samaki Walker says, stop the bus. They're on the bus back from practice and dares Kobe. All right, let's go. Let's get off the bus. And Kobe doesn't get off the bus. And Samaki Walker tells him, that's what I thought. And then Kobe calls him. That night at the hotel, crying, apologizing for everything. And it's just like, it's all, the reason I bring it, and, he, and, and you know, you were there. He calls Shaq fat, out of shape. The whole, just over and over, they fight about everything. He wants the ball. As a rookie, he's telling Del Harris, his first coach, well, if he just cleared Shaq out of the lane, me, 18-year-old Kobe Bryant, like, I, who knows what I could do? I could probably put up 35. Just get the big guy out of the way. It's all... It's all part of the package without all the unpleasantness of what he was as a, as a, as a teammate at times. And as a human being at times, you don't get, and, and, and the unpleasantness includes all the crazy shots that missed. You don't get the crazy shots that hit. You don't get five championships. You don't get 30,000 or whatever points you don't get it because from the same wellspring that all of that, um, sort of cantankerous behavior came also came the practices the drills the work ethic the honing of the footwork all of the stuff that went into making Kobe what he was but I mean you can attest to this like young Kobe Bryant I mean you enjoyed being around him I don't know that how many teammates at the time enjoyed being around him yeah and and that like a lot of things was not linear um there were good moments and bad moments and good years and bad years and in the seven years I covered him from 97 to 04 even the Shaq and Kobe thing it was like they hate each other they're winning championship and jumping into each other's arms now they hate each other again they're putting it back together again and and so it was up and down and it was the same with teammates and you know there were guys look you know he and Derek Fisher who came in together in 96 um you know a few years apart in age because you know Fish went to college and Kobe came straight out of uh high school but like they came in together as rookies and were always tight and like uh, Rick Fox and Brian Shaw, who were veterans, who I think, um, you know, at, at times felt the challenge of, of uh, working with Kobe, dealing with Kobe, playing with Kobe, nevertheless, were fond of him. Uh, maybe other guys a little less so. Uh, and, and a lot of guys had to kind of, you know, navigate between Shaq and Kobe. And 
you know, Kobe wasn't going out. We have, we know this, you know, the, with all the infamous stories of Kobe being a loner and not having, you know, first of all, he was younger, so he wasn't going to the clubs with them initially anyway, because he wasn't of age. And then uh, just his personality, he kind of kept his own counsel. And so uh, there was just, a, there was an age divide and there was just Kobe's own insular nature in his earlier years. It took him a while to really, this is the thing, like, and I've said this on your podcast before, probably Zach, you know, Kobe gets to the league at age 18. He wins his first championship. I think he's 22. The fight with Samaki that you're talking about, I think he's 23. Like everybody in their late teens, early 20s, even through mid-20s is still kind of finding themselves. And the case with Kobe and a lot of NBA players that we see maybe stumble at times or have to work through things, it's because they're growing up in this searing spotlight that the rest of us, you know, did not have to deal with, uh, in our, our, our own dull lives. So, um, yeah, there's certain things that, that are just, you know, inescapable truths about who Kobe was at that time. But a lot of this is just him, I think, trying to figure out who he's going to be, who he is, you know, how to work with these older players and how to, how to become the superstar that he knows in his mind, he's destined to be, but within this team concept. And yeah, he didn't go to college to go learn from, Dean Smith or Coach K or somebody about how to play within a system. And, uh, you know, and, and Shaq did him no favors. Shaq, you know, the, the, the book puts Kobe in a, in a like Jeff Perlman's book puts Kobe in a, in a pretty harsh light. And I'm not saying that any of that is, is inaccurate. Um, these are firsthand accounts from former teammates and others. But I think what got overlooked at times in, in his book and over gets, gets overlooked at times by everybody Shaq was pretty brutal to Kobe from day one, kept him at arm's length, uh, kind of ostracized him, mocked him, you know, dubs him showboat. It was not, yep, yep. it was, it was not meant as a compliment and it, it was hard on Kobe. You know, here you are, you're 18 years old. Yeah. You're, you're acting as if you already own the league. Sure. But that's just covering up for whatever, you know, insecurity as a, as a, as a kid who's trying to find his way in a league of men who are, are all, you know, much older, more established. Like he knows what his talent level is, but he doesn't have their experience or their life experience. And so it was important for him to be embraced. And instead of being embraced, he was uh, put on an island early on. And, and I think that was really difficult. And so that's not to let Kobe off the hook for any of his own behavior over that period of time. It's just to say that the environment was not particularly welcoming. Shaq could have done a lot better. I, I think Shaq himself would, would probably admit that now. I think he has. Um, and of course they reconciled, you know, and yes. several times and did podcasts together and everything. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket 
with vivid seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, ooh, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code LOW. That's code LOW, L-O-W-E, my last name, the name of this podcast. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. You know, Kobe, you mentioned he was sort of a loner and all that. I think one of the through lines when you read about Kobe and talk about Kobe is that he had a little bit of an awkwardness to him. You know, several of his teammates describe him as socially awkward in, in, in several books that have been written, uh, at least tangentially, about him. You know, and everyone knows the story, right? You know, you grow up a fish out of water in Italy, and then you come back a fish out of water in suburban Philadelphia. Um, and and I think that's part of what made, you know, I think part of what made the accident hit even deeper than it would have anyway <clears throat> as a tragedy was there was always a sense that Kobe was, and, and his teammates talk about this freely in several different books, like trying on different personalities. Um, like there was almost something performative, even late in his career when he became the foul-mouthed old man calling people Charmin, soft as whatever. There was always something performative about it. Like you never got the sense that what who is he really, right? And so who he was really, and, and that's why, you know, Kobe Bryant, girl dad, and advocate for girls basketball and coach of girls basketball that was the time I think what a lot of people even if it didn't dawn on them consciously it was like this is a new version of him that I haven't seen before even his face you know smiling more and it it just it it had the sense of after years of translate uh, transitioning from one personality to the next and being a little bit of a loner and being awkward He's growing into what he was supposed to be. It, it felt like that. And that's what made it hit a home even more, I think. Yes, absolutely. That is absolutely the case. Um, the fully formed, fully realized, fully evolved Kobe was the one we saw his last few years. Um, you know, starting late in his career after his daughters are born, but certainly into retirement and him becoming, you know, uh, a, a creator, a filmmaker and a storyteller and all these other things. And yes, uh, a, a girl dad. Um, and, you know, I, that is what makes it that much more wrenching and tragic and, and hard to deal with the, the reality of, of his of his being gone is that like that was the real Kobe at the end. Like, I know everybody wants, like, they're, depending on how you view Kobe, whether you love him or hate him, there are people who are going to, to gravitate toward the Mamba, uh, the Black Mamba era and the, the way he played and the way he carried himself and, and the, the, the coldness that there was sometimes with that and the, the viciousness, sometimes even cruelty with teammates and all that, because there was something about it that we admire in sports that if you were like a killer, and Kobe liked to refer to himself as a killer. And, and yeah, there's something, you know, that the machismo and, um, the hyperaggression there that is appealing in a sports uh, prism. But I said this at the end when people were very cynically, and I'm, I mean his, his last couple of years in the league, when people were very cynically saying, oh, he's putting on this big charm offensive because he wants to go out with people liking him and he's trying to make up for this and that. Like, no, this is the guy I knew. This is the guy I met in 1997. And certainly, a, you know, a much you know older, wiser version of him. But Kobe was engaging and open and sometimes self-effacing and and fun to talk to and and a good guy. Like I I liked him from day one. 
those first couple of years. And then he got harder over time. His, his personality hardened and he got more, uh, he got, you know, distrustful. And there were a lot of things that happened to him in his life, with his family, with his teammates, with Shaq, that all changed him in certain ways. And, you know, the Black Mamba emerges later. And that's, of course, after this, the, the sexual assault charge and everything else, too. And so a lot of things went into who he became in the mid-2000s that made people perceive him a different way. But when, so when they saw it at the end, like, I don't blame anybody for at the end being a little cynical about it, thinking like, well, I never saw this Kobe before. Yeah, yeah right. He, he had, he had basically, uh, you know, covered that guy up. He had, he had sequestered that part of his personality. I think the, the, the brighter, warmer, more open parts of his personality and locked them up somewhere to become this Mamba thing instead. But what I saw at the end, and I remember talking to Robert Ory that night at the at his final game against Utah, um, and me asking him, "Am I crazy, or is this? Am I seeing this right? Like this, like this is the the real Kobe on some level. Not that the rest of it does isn't also a part of him." And so then when I asked Kobe about it post game, um, after his final game, and he basically said, "Yeah, like this was, and this, you know, granted, it's a little bit of Kobe doing the storyteller thing where he says, you know, we're all both right. We're all good and evil. We all got these different aspects to us." But he's right, and he did. He highlighted one piece of himself for those years, and it attracted some people, and it repelled others. But at the end, I'm telling you, the the Kobe who was open and funny and blunt and engaging and warm, like that was the real Kobe. It's it's he he created this other artifice for the purpose of winning a couple more titles without Shaq, and it was what he thought was necessary to get there. Well, and you know, you mentioned the sex assault charge, and I don't blame. You said I don't blame. Blah, blah, blah. I don't blame people who don't really want laudatory columns about Kobe Bryant in the wake of all this because, you know, I, we don't know exactly what happened in that hotel room. We know that there was a case that was dropped because of a lot of really awful courthouse errors, in, including the release of the victim's name at one point. We know that Kobe Bryant apologized in, in saying, I quote, I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual. I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. And that's uncomfortable to read now. And it's just part of, it's part of his story. And so he has an incentive, had an incentive to say all of us are part good and part evil. But, you know, his determination, his unpleasantness as a teammate, his demand to seize the league upon entering. I mean, people forget now um, he probably needed that because most people thought he was nuts to come out of high school and go into the NBA. Here's Marty Blake, the NBA scouting director. He's kidding himself, Blake told the Los Angeles Times. This is from Jeff Jeff Perlman's book. Sure, he'd like to come out now. I'd like to be a movie star. He's not ready. You watch Kobe Bryant and you don't see special, said Rob Babcock, Minnesota's director of player personnel. His game doesn't say, I'm a very special talent. I think it's a total mistake, said John Jennings, the Boston Celtics director of player development. Kevin Garnett was the best high school player I ever saw, and I would not have advised him to jump. And Kobe is no Kevin Garnett. I mean, that's what he was facing when, with his, frankly, ridiculous sunglasses, he declared to the world that he was taking his talents to the NBA. Um, and, and so maybe you need a little bit of, um, let's say, edge to, to make it through that. And maybe you, the way you cope with whatever uncertainty you might be feeling is to shove that uncertainty down and replace it with, something even beyond certainty that you belong, an arrogance and a confidence that is part projected and part real. Like I'm ready. And maybe that's part of that. That's part of it too. 
I think so. And it didn't even have to be conscious, Zach. I, I, like it didn't even have to be a conscious thing. I'm going to create this other, you know, this harder edge and this persona, whatever, just to survive. And I'm talking, you know, pre-Mamba, even the early years where he's created, where he's got this hard edge. Like, I, I think to the extent that he had to find his way in this league at age 18, as a skinny high school kid who makes the, this leap, um, it, I don't know that, there's, that that was all conscious. I think it was just he had – he knew who he was. He knew what his talent he had. He knew what his drive was. He knew how well, how much he was willing to work for it. And nobody else is going to be able to see that, right? You just read through it. All these scouts, all these guys who are paid a lot of money to identify. And by the way, talent. that's not to make fun of them. We're all going to be wrong yeah, all the time course. about players. I'm just trying to oh, put no. back, take you back yeah. in time to 1996, like what people were it's, saying. It's important to to underscore that because. Yes, the people who were who were paid to identify talent weren't sure, but Kobe was sure. Like Kobe knew what they didn't. Kobe knew himself. He knew what he was willing to do to get there. And so it's it's important to bring up what those guys said because it that's the divide. Nobody else can see it. No one else can see it coming except for Kobe. And so of course, he's got to then find a way to navigate that and then convince everybody. Or if he can't convince them, he's got to, sh- you know, I'm going to show them. And if they don't believe it, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go to extremes to show it. But he's the only one who believes it. He's the only one who understands it. He's the only one who, not to say that at age 18, he could see everything that would come in the next 20 years of his career, but he was the one who had the vision, who knew it was possible. And, and again, that's fine. Like, that is exactly what makes him this inspirational figure to so many he saw in his own mind what his his destiny was or what he believed his destiny was and nobody else could see it but him two guys drove to work neither guy wore a seatbelt. one guy got a ticket one guy didn't the same two guys drove home one guy wore a seatbelt. one guy didn't One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? Full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Stephen A. Smith goes beyond the headlines to unlock a unique world of hot takes, one-of-a-kind segments, and can't-miss interviews. Stream all this and more on his new show, Stephen A.'s World. It's always a good world with Stephen A. Exclusively on ESPN+. Plus. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com. At the end of the Shaq Kobe era, the last season of the Shaq Kobe era, do you remember, Mr. Beck? Do you remember 
sitting down with the one and only Phil Jackson for a uh, one-on-one and Phil Jackson declaring to you, quote, Shaq is going to be the focal point, unquote, of the offense. Do you remember this? Yes, we were uh, at what was then the uh, brand new Shishi Boutique Hotel in downtown Memphis. And we spent uh, the majority of that conversation talking, uh, I think, about Iraq. <laughs> and, um, then, and, then, and then eventually got to, because I think that was, I th- that, was, that was around the time of the Iraq War. Um, and we talked, this is how, how it always went. We would talk about uh, all these other things first. And then I'd say, oh, yeah, that's right. We're going to do a sit down and I need to turn the tape recorder on so we can talk about, you know, Shaq and Kobe inevitably. Um, yes, I, re- I do recall that conversation. Do you recall that it made Kobe angry? Yes. Hovering over all of that is Kobe is talking about maybe opting out. Phil's future, as I recall, is it was obviously uncertain. It ended up being the first last season, right, Howard? I mean, there was there was all of this hovering over that team. Yeah, the the 03-04 season was tense from the beginning for a, a whole bunch of different reasons, and. You know, let's start with the fact that, yeah, Kobe is facing the sexual assault charge in Colorado. So there's that tension. He's having to go back and forth between uh, L.A. and and Colorado. And so he's not it's a very tense year for him, period, alone. But the whole team, things were starting to fray. And we didn't know this was going to break up. But certainly the warning signs were there because. Kobe could opt out and had made a lot of noise about it behind the scenes, which I wrote about at one point that season about the fact that he was threatening to go and specifically to the Clippers. Uh, Shaq wanted an extension from Jerry Buss. Shaq, you know, infamously during the preseason in Honolulu is dunking and then turning toward Jerry Buss on the sidelines saying, pay me because he wanted this big extension that the Lakers weren't prepared to give him. So Shaq wasn't happy. And he's, he's starting to feel some uncertainty about his future. Kobe can opt out. Kobe's facing very serious charges in Colorado. Phil's going to be a free agent. And Phil wanted an extension that Jerry Buss wasn't prepared to give. And at midseason or around midseason, they officially broke off those talks. You've got Gary Payton and Carl Malone coming in being grafted on. The, the core that had won three titles around Shaq and Kobe had already begun to fray and age and dissipate. Um, Ori's gone. Fox and Fisher are getting older. Horace Grant is a you know recycled piece they're using. So there was it was it, it was a a tough season from the get go. And I wonder if you remember this. I had forgotten about this until I looked back at the last season. The tension between Shaq and Kobe was so bad at one point. This is according to Phil's book that Shaq would not allow himself to be taped before a game by Gary Vitti, the legendary Lakers trainer, because he perceived that Gary Vitti was too close to Kobe. And so Kobe wouldn't like Shaq's, the, whoever on the training staff was close to Shaq, Chip Schaefer, Kobe wouldn't let that guy tape his ankle. So they had different ankle tapers or different body tapers. I mean, that is some superstar level pettiness between Shaq and Kobe. You have no memory of that. So that's a crazy detail. That's one of those things that somebody probably, you know, tells after the fact that you don't know about in real time. Um, Because no, I I did not know that until I learned it from Jeff Perlman's book. But it does underscore again that, yes, as much as Kobe has had his faults and his immaturities and and the things that that, that, the way that he acted that would... um, help create this feud, 
Shaq as the older player, the 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 guy who should have been the bigger person figuratively as well as literally. Shaq, that the fact that he would have be that petty to that extreme, even that late in their time together, it just it 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 says a lot. And yet, and yet, they are one of the greatest duos in the history of professional sports. They led the Lakers to three consecutive championships, the ultra rare in the NBA, three-peat, something the Spurs. The Spurs never repeated. The Warriors didn't manage a three-peat. It doesn't happen um, very often. And the middle of those championships in 2001 uh, was the most dominant run, at least tied with the Warriors probably in 2017 for the most dominant run in the history of the NBA playoffs, 15-1, and one, just absolutely curb-stomped everyone. The only loss is the Allen Iverson step-over game against the Sixers. Um and I just wondered, you know, you covered that whole run. I That's crazy. I'm so envious of that. I, I just wonder if you have any sort of favorite stories, flashbulb memories when you're 85 years old. These are going to be in your brain forever. And, and the one from your Kobe remembrance piece from a year ago that I had I had forgotten about until I reread it was that that middle championship they win and people are going crazy in the locker room. And I think you, you correct me if I'm wrong. You're, you're one of the first people in there. One of the only people in there, everyone's going crazy. They're listening to DMX and you spot Kobe just sitting kind of in a corner by himself, deep, deep in thought or something, which is a very evocative image and something I'd forgotten about. Yeah. And so, and I was happy to see this a year ago um, or, or just, it was nice to see in the wake of, of, of us losing Kobe, somebody resurfaced this photo. It's of me in my old goofy glasses and my like bad dockers or whatever. And I'm standing next to Kobe in that locker room in Philly. Kobe's in a championship Lakers jacket. And in, he, you can see he's kind of in a daze. They're just, you know, the, the, the bliss of winning the second straight title. And I'm the only one standing there next to him because the whole rest of the team and whatever other media are in there are at the other end of this visiting locker room in Philly where the whole Laker team is locked together, bouncing up and down in this big scrum, singing to DMX, Shaq's in the middle of it all. And yes, um, tellingly, poignantly, Kobe is off by himself to the side. And, and the reason that I was there for that for that moment was because, and I don't know if they still do this, but when you were a beat writer covering a team back then, the NBA PR would give you this special sticker to put on your credential so that after the game, you'd be one of the first led into the locker room to wow. see the, cha the, champ the champagne celebration, to see all those moments before it got crowded and crazy. And so it was me and a couple of other beat writers, maybe plus the Lakers and a couple cameras and NBA entertainment and so I got to be there for that moment. And, and yeah, my immediate thought as I saw this, this bouncing, loud, uh, boisterous scrum over at one side was to see Kobe to the side to, by himself at the under, other end of the locker room. And I, I walked up to go talk to him. And I remember like he was just very quiet. And it was... Um, do, you remember, do you remember what you talked about at all? You know what? If, if, I, if I'd known we were going to revisit that moment, I would have probably gone and tried to find that clip i'm sure i must have quotes from the championship that night of, of kobe talking about you know something i i would love to go revisit those quotes i'm sure i'm sure you would too um so you're there for all of it what what other i'm not i know you got games that stick with you right you got other moments that stick with you what's a game that sticks with you well, that same season, and I, this is a game I wanted to highlight. You know, I often, when people say, what was your favorite Kobe game? I usually gravitate toward game four of the 2000 finals. That's the one where Shaq fouls out. Kobe's come back off of this horrific ankle injury that had knocked him out of game three, and he carries them in overtime. 
And it's his first like real like Jordan-esque kind of moment, which is how people saw it at the time. He's 21. And that's how everybody that that was when people knew like that was Kobe putting himself on the map was game four of the 2000 finals. So that's the one I usually gravitate toward. But I'm going for a different one today, Zach. Um, 2001, that same season we were just talking about that ends with them beating the Sixers in the finals for the second championship. That's the 15 and one run. That run, pieces of it in particular, just show you how dominant, how incredible Kobe was. And at that time, still only just 22 years old. Because I know when people think about the three-peat, they think, well, Shaq won the three MVPs and he earned them all. And he was incredible, just ridiculously dominant in those finals. But they don't get there without Kobe. And they don't get there without Kobe being a complete and even efficient and incredibly savvy player. This is not the caricature of Kobe. This is not gunner Kobe. This is not ignore my teammates and do it all on my own Kobe. This is the 2001 Western Conference Finals against the San Antonio Spurs. The Lakers do not have home court. They won 56 games down from 67 their, their first year uh, with Phil. But those Spurs win 58. The Lakers are 7-0 in the playoffs. They've won 15 straight going back to the regular season. They're on an incredible roll. But the Spurs are a phenomenal team with They're Duncan the and Robinson. The Borg. The Spurs. Yes. And they have home court. So this is game one at the Alamo Dome. And Kobe goes for 45 points and 10 rebounds. And in the locker room afterward, Shaq walks over to him and, and, and calls him my idol, says, you're my idol. And in the press conference afterward, Shaq says Kobe is, quote, the best player in the league by far. And the importance of that on like, yes, they've already won one championship together. But as I've often said, this thing was a roller coaster. And this particular season, in December of this season, Shaq had given the quote about, if you want the big dog to guard the house, you got to feed him and give him toys and pet him and whatever. I don't remember the toys part of it. I remember the food part. What? I don't it, remember toys. There were, there were toys. I, I looked it okay. back up. There was something about toys. Um, you got to play with the dog. Shaq went the extra mile on that one. <laughs> he did love a good analogy, especially about guard dogs. And that was in December. In January of that year, not to be outdone, Kobe Bryant tells Rick Buecher, Quote, turn my game down. I need to turn it up. I've improved. How are you going to bottle me up? I'd be better off playing someplace else, thus sowing the seeds of a potential. Anytime Kobe Bryant did a sit down with a national reporter, especially Jim Gray, it was just guaranteed to light the Lakers on fire and inflame shy. Every time he did it, it was just, it was so. You got to hand it to him. He would just put it out there. He would call Shaq. He could told Jim Gray, Shaq can't show up fat anymore. If he's the best player on the team, he, can't, he just called him fat. Quick side note on that, though. This Rick Buecher quote, or the one to Buke, and the, the, the quotes to Jim Gray you're alluding to were really the only time he threw a grenade out like that. Like Shaq, it was a constant, constant thing, just poking and prodding and throwing things out in the media and that's, uh, you know, slightly shrouded comments, not shrouded at all comments. Like Shaq was the one always kind of trying to, to stir this up Kobe usually held his tongue a couple of times he didn't he called out Shaq famously and in detailed fashion to Jim Gray that also by the way I believe was at the beginning of that 0304 season it was it was the fall so, of 2003 so this is an 01 and he tells this stuff he says this to Rick Buecher and this and this stirs things up so they've they're going through it again it doesn't matter that there's this amazing photo of Kobe jumping into Shaq's arms after they beat the Pacers the year before 
and all this. And I remember in the finals in, in 2001, between games at one point, I got to sit down with Shaq to ask him about um, how they had come apart again and were feuding again. And I said, in the course of the interview, I said something to the effect of, I thought you guys had solved this all. And he says, I did too. So they had to patch it back up again. This is what they did. They come apart. They patch it back up over and over. Game one, Alamo Dome, Kobe, 45 and 10 call Shaq calls him best player in the league by far. And go people go to YouTube, type in, 2001 Lakers Spurs game one Kobe and you'll see like a 12 minute reel of his highlights he is incredible Kobe is he's only 22 but it's like he's at the height of his powers and he's efficient he's skilled he's deadly he's graceful he's everything you'd want in a superstar he was incredible and the reason I point to that one Zach not just what Shaq said and not just the meaning of that but the, that whole series Kobe was just dominant game two he goes for 28 seven and six seven rebounds, six assists. Uh, Shaq goes for 19 and 14. Game three, Kobe goes for 36, nine and eight. Shaq has 35 and 17. So he's outscored him in, in the first three games of the series. Fourth game, Shaq leads with 26. Kobe goes for 24, two and 11 assists. So the last two games of that series, they sweep the Spurs. Kobe has eight assists and 11 assists. In addition to being a dominant scorer, his averages for that four game sweep 33, 7, and 7, shooting 51%. That's the Kobe I would like people to remember in terms of his playing career and his dominance and his skill level. And when he was focused and he was on, and he, he like, I understand the caricature. I understand the stuff about Kobe being a mindless gunner and overdoing it and doing too much and ignoring teammates. And all those things happened at times. It's not the full picture by far. And there were times when he was a dominant scorer, times he was a dominant scorer and great playmaker simultaneously, as we saw in that series. And they they sweep, you know, they sweep the Spurs. Yeah, they they then lose game one to the to the Sixers, and then they roll the Sixers. Um, so that's the one I wanted to point to, just because I think it's it was Kobe at his absolute most dominant and against one of the greatest teams that they were going to face in the course of their run. Um, and it had even Shaq kind of in all. The night, Kobe, the night of the helicopter crash, I was in the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles um, watching old Kobe games, and I rediscovered this game um, from that from that run in, in, uh, in 2001. And it's the second round against the Kings, who they also sweep because they just swept everybody. Kobe played 48 minutes the whole game, not one second of rest, 48 points, 16 rebounds on 15 of 29 shooting, 17 made free throws, 16 rebounds, nine offensive rebounds. At halftime, they're losing. Jim Gray interviews him. Now, we don't see the interview. We just hear Jim Gray's voiceover telling him, telling us about the interview. And Kobe tells him, it's the most fun I've had all year. And Jim Gray asks him why. And he says, because we're losing. And this is fun for me because we've just been, this has been too, basically like it's been too easy. We're losing. And the nine offensive rebounds. So you mentioned the all around Kobe, the stuff about his craft and, and how he, how he, you know, his footwork and all that stuff, how much work he put into it. That's all, that's all the stuff of legend. But I think what uh, over all of that is he really did want to be great at every part of the game. And did his attention to detail on defense wane sometimes? Yes, particularly later in his career when he was making all defense teams he didn't deserve to be on. But he could be a great defensive player when he wanted to be. He could be a great passer when he wanted to be. Now, was he an anticipatory passer? 
Did he pass early in the way that LeBron James does, you know, it catching the defense early in their rotation? No, he waited for double and triple teams to come, but he was great at those kinds of late passes. Would you ideally have liked him to mix in more of the early stuff? You would see it now and then, but it wasn't really his forte. But the rebounding, you know, and and this was a little bit Jordan-esque of him. Two of his most impactful plays are offensive rebounds. And in that Pacers game that you mentioned, game four, when Shaq fouls out and it's a 2-1 series, they've lost game three. Game four is pivotal. Kobe's solo in overtime. No Shaq for most of that overtime. He tips in. He, he gets a – I believe he tips it in. Yeah, he tips in uh, somebody's miss to put the Lakers up three with like six seconds left. And then Reggie Miller misses a game-tying three at the end of the – or game-winning three at the end of the game because there was a technical free throw of some kind. Tip in. And then in 2002 – against the Spurs, so the third championship, it's game four again. He scores the last eight points of the game on two threes and a game-winning rebound where he comes in. I think Fisher may have missed a shot. Kobe comes in from the three-point line, overruns the rebound because it's a long rebound, reaches back so far with his left hand that his arm is almost parallel to the floor, grabs the ball, puts it back in, and the Lakers end up winning the game. Like it just underscores that he was great at every part of the game when he wanted to be, and, and it was not just was not just a score. So those are those are a couple of my favorite games. That forty eight point game, the Pacers game you mentioned. I loved um, you know two thousand ten against the Suns on their way to the last championship. He 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 closes out the Suns and he hits a dagger three right in front of Alvin Gentry on the sidelines and pats Alvin Gentry on the backside as he runs back up and down the court. Just an ultimate badass move. And Alvin Gentry is like, yeah, can't, can't really say anything. Just smiles at him, kind of. He just had such a flair and, and such um, a, a sense for those moments. And, yeah, I mean, and, and so much of it gets, you know, it, it fades over time. Our memories fade. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I do not have a photographic memory. I wish I did. Um, there's a lot, like, man. You, you said it earlier, Zach, how you know, like envious of, of me being there for all those. And I'm, I'm, I absolutely, at the time, it's just work and it's stressful as hell. And those teams were stressful to cover. And so there's a certain part of it where I probably didn't appreciate in the moment just what I was seeing, how amazing it was, what a once in a lifetime opportunity it was to cover those teams. Because it, it was, and this is not, by the way, this is not a woe is me thing. This is not like, you know, sports writer, you know, complaining like we all often do. It's just, it was. It's a. I mean, it's a, it's a. It's a hard job. It was seven days a week attached to that team, um, and and they were a handful. And so in the in the moment, you're just trying to keep up. At times, there's very few moments where you can sit back and, and go, "Wow, I just saw something really amazing." Um, and if you think detail and the stuff about his attention to detail is is you know it, like it took a lot of. I mean, it did take a lot of work to produce detail, but like. He had to put on a show for that's just that's just how he was um, about basketball. He just saw it. So I, I've I've told this story on your podcast. Do you mind if I tell it on my yep. podcast? Of course. My Kobe story is: I wake up at six in the morning one day in New York, and I have a text from some ungodly hour from a number I don't have nine four nine area code, and it just says, "It's Kobe. Call me." And I wake my wife's elbow, probably elbow, probably threw like a shack elbow at my wife to wake her up. And I'm like, this has to be a hoax. So I call the only person at ESPN that I know that probably has Kobe's number, Ramona Shelburne. Say, hey, I got this text. Here's the number. She said, it's Kobe. It's a real Kobe. And I said, okay. 
Then I proceeded to pivot into fear, which is I haven't actually been kind to Kobe in my writing or historical appraisal of where he ranks among. I probably have him a couple spots lower on the all-time greats. I wonder if as he nears retirement, because this is his last year, he sees this ESPN voice who's not so laudatory and wants to yell at him. And uh, I pivot into fear. So I call Kobe because he said, call me. So I, I called Kobe. And he proceeds to talk about how NBA media is broken, uh, the focus on championships and trades and who hates who. Ironically, of course, Shaq and Kobe became the modern day template for who hates who um, was distracting from the beauty of the game. And, and he had found a writer, one writer among many, who seemed to delight in the X's and O's of the game. And he wanted to talk about changing the media landscape. He didn't want to be on NBA Countdown. He didn't want to be another talking head. He wanted to just change the entire paradigm of how media was covered. And I'm sitting there on the phone being like, this dude is ridiculous. Like, like everything he's saying is ridiculous. So he invites me to come watch uh, some Cleveland Toronto conference finals game. I don't know what game it was. Cleveland won by a million points at his office in Newport beach. And I don't want to go because I'm ambivalent for many different reasons, not the least of which is this is going to be completely embarrassing for me. We're going to watch a game and I'm picturing he's going to pause it and be like, so what do you see here? So what do you see here? So what do you see here? What's going on here? What should this player do? And I'm going to be there like, uh, I'm, I'm underqualified to be in this room, buddy. Um, so I walk in and uh, it's just Kobe. I thought it was going to be a whole group of people. It's just Kobe. We sit down and watch the game. He's like, hey, you, you want a beer? I said, well, I'm not going to turn down a beer. And his assistant comes in with a six pack of beer. And to this day, I'm only 90% sure what kind of beer it was. I think it was Dos Equis, but I'm not sure. And we split the six pack and watch the game. And he's pausing it, pointing at like footwork stuff. Do you see this? He's doing detail in front of me. And then the game ends. I'm buzzed because I've had three beers. We split the whole six pack of beers. This is why I don't remember it well enough. I wish I had taken notes. I wish I had photographed. I wish I had taped it. And he's talking about how he wants to do documentaries about Bill Russell and find archival footage and break down a game from the 1969 finals and this and that. And he talks about how changing the way media covers the NBA is it's so bad. It's like turning around the Titanic and he's got all these grandiose ideas and I'm, and I walk out and I'm like, he's, this is just, he's way over the, he'll never accomplish any of this. This is all crazy talk. He'll never accomplish it. But that was, that was how he was. And, and that night with Kobe, you know, it's a full game. It's three hours of time was one of the highlights of my career. It was a complete out of body experience. And like you, I wish that I had, I, I, I don't even, it still feels like an imaginary thing that happened. And it's crazy to me that, that he's, he's gone. Yeah. And look, I'm, I am envious of that experience you had with him. Um, certainly we had a, a bazillion conversations on and off the record, basketball, not basketball, uh, whatever, just stuff. Talked about commercials. He sometimes would talk about how he made certain commercials. Um, so we would just have all these just random conversations. And it's over the course of seven years that I'm a beat writer. And then, you know, others later after I moved to New York, but the majority of it is over those seven years. But when you're the beat writer, when you're in a guy's face every day, like that's one of the things you realize in this business is that, um, you know, the media, we're all a pain in the ass. Um, but the beat <laughs> writers are the biggest true. pain in the ass because we're there every day. So we're there for all the high highs and all the low lows. And we're there to say, why'd you miss that shot? Why, you know, why'd you let that guy steal the ball? You know, you know, why'd you miss those free throws? Like, you know, why don't, why, why, why don't you get along with Shaq? Why'd you give those quotes to Jim Gray? 
Um, and so <laughs> you, 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 you like, uh, that was one of those funny tense moments, actually. Jay Adande loves bringing this one up. Uh, Andre Aldridge also loves bringing this one up. Um, Kobe, I don't know if I've told you this story. Kobe gives that statement to Jim Gray, but Jim Gray presents it as, here's these quotes from Kobe. And it's like a five straight paragraphs, extensive Kobe talking about Shaq getting toe surgery on company time and Shaq being out of shape and Shaq this and Shaq that. And I'm like, first of all, he's never said any of these things before. This is wild, but there's nothing on tape. Jim Gray's not playing a, a video or audio. Um, and Jim Gray's a TV reporter. So I'm used to, if, if he's got an interview, we're going to see it, at least hear it. But it's just a statement that he has. I'm like, well, did he hand it to him? And I, I, I don't know why I was so obsessed with this, but I, I, I was like, so like, how did this happen? So Kobe, the first time he's meeting with the media after that, and I'm trying to get him like, trying to get him to give us a detail about like, so, you know, this, this interview that he gave him, because we don't, again, we don't see it. And Jim Gray's a TV interviewer. And I don't remember how I asked it, but I was being annoying. I'm, I'm sure I was. And Kobe cuts me off with a Howie, Howie, Howie. As because I'm talking, so he's talking over me, basically just to shut it down. Um, so Andre Aldridge and, and JA will say this sometimes too, just do the howie, howie, howie. Um, but we're annoying, we're a pain in the ass. And so I think like the reason that Kobe, when he gave a lot of those really insightful interviews to national guys, it's often because the national guys are not the ones who are the pain in the ass who are there every day. And I got to experience the other end of that when I left LA to go to the New York Times when I mostly covered the Knicks, but then I would go back to LA. Now I'm the national guy. Now I'm also working for a big national paper, but also I'm the guy who Kobe went through all these things with good, bad, and otherwise over seven years. Now the first time I'll never forget the first time I walked back into the, the, their Jim and El Segundo as a Knicks beat writer, who's now left. I'm not covering the team every day. I'm not the pain in the ass every day anymore. And I walk in and he sees me and he's, his face lit up and, and he's like, Hey man, what's up big time? How you doing? Whatever. New York times. Da, da, da. And it was like, I was like his long lost pal from junior high suddenly. Um, and it's not that we didn't have good times before, but there were also a lot of tense times. And the last time I'd covered him up close was that, that really tense 03, 04 season. And so it's different when you're not there every day. Uh, so that's, that's one. And then the second thing is to, uh, to what we were saying. I wish I had kept more of the tapes. Of course, they were little micro cassette tapes back then. They would have been like de degraded by now. I wish I kept more of the tapes. I wish I had the photographic memory of these conversations and interactions. Um, I wish I'd taken better notes about all the things that did not go in the newspaper. I can go back and look at LA Daily News clips. I can go back. I've got every Word, Microsoft Word document that I've ever typed a word about the Lakers in is still on my computer going back to 97. I've kept all of it. I'm a digital as well as a real life pack rat. It's all there, but I don't have those little moments. Hoarder. It sounds like hoarder actually maybe would be a, a better word. Uh, people in my community prefer pack rat. In your community. Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't realize there was. A, uh, yeah. I can close my eyes and I can see Kobe's conference room in Newport beach. He sat at the head of the table. I sat to his right. The TV was on the other end of the table and I could see him swiveling around in his chair. I can see the bucket of beer. It was in a bucket in the middle of the table. And I just, wish that I could remember more of what we talked about. I remember him standing up at points to point things out on the screen. Um, the game became, it was like a 30 point blowout. So we kind of stopped paying attention to the game and started shooting the breeze about other stuff. And I just wish I can close my eyes and see it, but I can't hear it. And part of the reason I can't hear it, except for these little snippets here or there is because I just, I thought it was something that 
maybe we would, I mean, and we would discuss basketball over text and email here and there, but I just didn't, you don't fathom it at the time as this thing that's you're going to want to freeze right there and remember forever. So I just, I wish I remembered more of it. Yeah, I, I absolutely do. There's, there's a lot of that. There are things, you know, it's funny, the things that stick with you. And I highlighted these in, in my remembrance column about him a year ago. And it's a couple of anecdotes that I've gone to on occasion because they were moments that are away from the cameras and they're not during games, but that, that always stick with me and that are more vivid where I didn't have to like strain to reconstruct it. They just had always stuck with me over time. But, you know, one of them was there on a practice day at the forum, the arena before this, before Staples center, of course. And at, the, on the, at that time we'd go into the locker room, even on practice days, they weren't closed. And I walk in and I sit down and it's less media then. So you could just do this. And I sit down and he's at his locker. And I'm just sitting next to him at like Eddie Jones's locker or something. And there's a golf tournament. I don't know if it was the masters or something on TV. And Kobe says, Howard, man, you play golf. I'm like, you know, no, not, not, not a golfer. Well, what about you? And he's like, no, man, I would never play anything I couldn't master. And I say, you can master basketball? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was one that I just had kind of like tucked away in the memory banks and then used a couple of years later. I think I, I think I told that story after his game four against the Pacers. I think I put it in my, my off day story the next day to, to kind of um, just just illuminate like his mindset and, and the fact that he was on this track to become Jordan-esque because of how because that, that, that soaring confidence. And so it was like things like that. And it's the day that he brought his sisters to practice um, at LA Southwest college where they used to practice and he introduced me to them both. And he was like, just this, this proud, proud brother of his, of his sisters. And was like, he was like, I, I always, this is why I always bring back, come back to these memories is like that, that Kobe was so much more open and warm than, than the image that people have of him. And of course, there were tensions later with his family and there were tensions with us in the media and every, everybody else. And so that moment could not have happened in, in the mid 2000s. But it was something that happened in whatever that was, 98, 99, in that range. And um, so those are the ones that always stick with me. I, I remember we're in the uh, visiting locker room in Memphis. He had just done some, there was some commercial where I think he like, uh, <laughs> does he dunk from like half court or something? I think there's a commercial where he dunks, and this is not the one where he dunks over the where he jumps over the car. That was later. This is um, early 2000s, and there was a I think it was him like taking off from like the half court line or something and dunking something crazy like that. And he actually said, "Well, you know how we did that because you don't don't write this, but here's how we did that." And so he explained the whole thing, which I now can't remember, of course, um, which is better that way. Let let the magic yeah. remain. Yeah. But but we just have it was just these offhand just casual, fun conversations about just stuff. Um, and in a pre-Twitter era and with less media and less crowded locker rooms, guys didn't just have to be on, on all the time and have everything be official and, and know that everything was going to be tweeted in two seconds. You could, there was just room to breathe and, and just have these offhand conversations. And so I wish I could have bottled the, all of those up and kept them with all the vivid detail that you appreciate about those moments or don't appreciate until years later. Well, it's, it's still shocking. Still doesn't feel real. It, even the Memorial, you know, when I was there that first week, you know, seeing the people mill around the Memorial, like I'm, I close my eyes and I see that packed LA live and think, did that, did that really happen? Like that feels so weird. Um, I don't, you know, it just, I, I don't know if we'll do this every year, you know, obviously Kobe's career has been, 
is well trod. Everybody kind of knows the highlights and stuff, but it felt right to do it this year and sort of remember him as a player and a person. Um, not not the best player of all time, not the best scorer of all time, not the best teammate of all time, not the most popular teammate of all time, but one of the greatest players of all time, one of the greatest champions of all time, and and a player who, when you combine what he was on the court with what he came to mean to people way before his death, what he came to symbolize for people, um, the devotion that he inspired. I'm not sure there's been anyone quite like him in the NBA. Um, And so Mr. Beck, uh, you can read Howard's piece at Sports Illustrated. We have a ton of Kobe content up at ESPN.com, including Ramona Shelburne has a wonderful story about the relationship between Pau Gasol and and Kobe Bryant. Um, Howard Beck of Sports Illustrated, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Zach. Appreciate it. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.